Something global has obviously taken place. In fact, in my research, I uncovered story after story of the flood account literally told among people living in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, the Far East, the Middle East, Africa, the Pacific Islands. Something global involving water happened. And uh, the story of the rescue of a few people abounds. Our own country's Native American Indians have their legends of a catastrophic flood. One West Coast Indian tribe tells the legend of how one man is saved from a flood by riding on the head of a mythological creature named Earth. Another Indian tribe in Arizona talks about a man named Montezuma and a friendly coyote who survive a flood in a, in a boat that Montezuma has prepared and kept hidden on a mountaintop. And after the flood, the coyote was sent out to see, you know, how much land was visible. In other uh, parts of the world, remnants of the flood account are, are, are told. They're twisted, uh, yet they still contain kernels of truth. Even the ancient Chinese characters that form the word for a large boat are three symbols. One symbol for a person, one symbol for a boat, and another symbol representing eight people inside the boat. Travel to Peru. The legend lives on that many years before there were any Incas in the world, all the people on earth drowned in a great flood except for a handful of people who became the forefathers of all the now existing races. Travel over to Cuba where they tell of an old man who knew a flood was coming so he built a great ship and he brought his family on board with a host of animals. Go to Mexico. The Mexican flood tradition talks about a man who saved himself, his family, and some animals that he brought onto a raft. As the waters began to subside, he sent out a vulture to find land, which didn't return. So he sent out a hummingbird, which did return, carrying a branch with green leaves on it. Even the natives of Alaska tell the legend of the father of their ancestors who was warned in a dream that a flood was going to come and everybody was going to perish. And so he built a raft on which he saved himself, his family, and a whole bunch of animals. The animals could talk, according to this legend in these days, and they soon complained about the long journey. You know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I guess. I don't know. But anyhow, they, they complained. And after the waters had gone down, they all alighted from the raft. However, the animals lost their powers of speech as a punishment for complaining. Tell that to your kids. <laughs> the Hawaiians say that in the old days there was great wickedness on the earth and that only one man was righteous. His name was Nu'u. Sounds a lot like Noah, doesn't it? Well, Nu'u built a great canoe and filled it with plants and animals and escaped when the flood came. After the flood ended, listen to how they combine all kinds of things. He saw the moon for the first time, thought it was a god named Cain, so he worshipped Cain. 
But Cain became displeased and he came down on a rainbow to scold Nu'u. Nu'u apologized and Cain went back up into heaven on the rainbow, but the rainbow remained as a token of Cain's forgiveness. The Lithuanians tell how their supreme god decided to destroy the world with a flood. After 20 days of raining, only a small group of people remained on top of the highest mountain. They would have drowned too, but the God, their God, accidentally dropped the shell of a nut he was eating, and the people used it for a boat and escaped. The Hindus of India tell of a man who not only built a ship, but along with seven other people, survived a great flood, but only because a fish drew the boat to, to ground on top of a mountain in the Himalayas, they also tell the story that the same man later on got drunk and was helped by his two sons. It's interesting, without any record of Scripture, these are the stories handed down. Something global happened. And on every continent and through hundreds of people groups, the story has been handed down, though twisted and changed and even corrupted. The story preserved in its original and pure form by the inspiring spirit of God through Moses, the prophet, about this man named Noah. And he was the only one prepared to hear from God. God, as you know, came with warnings and he came with a blueprint. You're going to build a large vessel never before conceived in the mind of man. In, in our last session, we noted that Noah's faith was demonstrated as a, as a clear profession of trust and, and belief, even though he was surrounded by unbelief. We also noted his piety, remember? His holy reverence, his holy awe about God and God's will, even though he was surrounded by uncertainty. He had no experience building boats. He, he wasn't experienced in handling elephants and uh, 70,000 other animals that will come to the ark two by two. I mean, how in the world could that one event have occurred without the supernatural oversight of God? We have uncovered so many different miracles wrapped up in this one that we so often overlook. Our family was in England a couple of years ago and went along to watch our son graduate from graduate school in the beautiful country of Wales. And we toured a couple of the highlights in England and Wales. And on one occasion, we were at the Royal Muse uh, the stables behind Buckingham Palace, and and we were watching as they were they were they were trying to get this stunning black stallion to walk up this gangplank in into that trailer, and he did not want to go. He reared and he kicked the his hind feet. He snorted. He complained. He did everything, and several people had to go and just sort of walk that huge, beautiful stallion up that plank. You know, some people get all hung up about the animals arriving two by two. Listen, I can't even imagine the miracle of them going up the gangplank like they're supposed to. And do you think for a moment that Noah had any control of any of that? No, it was God at work superimposing his divine will over his creation 
Even though humanity had run from him, the animals will obey. He drew the animals to the ark. He controlled the animals in their ascent into the ark. We looked at evidence that he placed them in a year of hibernation so that at the end of the year they didn't come out all multiplied. They came out and then he commanded them to mate and replenish the earth. God will control the underground fountains of uh, water. He'll direct the, the ark as it floats to his place for his purpose. And as we mentioned, there's no anchor, no wheel, no sail, no oar, not even a rudder. And I think Noah probably wondered about that too. But in spite of his uncertainties, in spite of his insecurities, in spite of his inexperience, he trusted the word of God and the will of God. He'll do as God commanded. He builds an ark and he preaches the gospel. And God would do what only God would do. Now, in this session, I want to make two more observations about this man's faith. So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, the first thing I want you to notice is that Noah's faith is going to be demonstrated by perseverance in the midst of mockery. His faith will be demonstrated by perseverance in the midst of mockery. If you look at chapter 11 and go back to verse 7, we're told, by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen and reverence prepared, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Now notice, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. In other words, Noah's actions are going to reveal his genuine faith in the word of God, which would be the gospel. And his actions, did you notice, by them he condemned the world. Now let's think about that for a moment. Genesis informs us that for a hundred years, Noah is building the ark. He's periodically preaching to the crowds that come to mock him. I mean, can you see him turning around on that scaffolding and it's four stories high, and periodically preaching to them, inviting them to be saved from the wrath of God? And, and that those who don't will perish in a coming flood. I mean, can you imagine how foolish that must have sounded to his generation? You got this 18,000 ton barge sitting in your back pasture. That was going to be on everybody's radar. I mean, this is going to be on Ripley's Believe It or Not tour. You could just see tour buses pulling up if they had tour buses. I mean, everybody's got to see this. And can you imagine the conversation? What are you doing, Noah? I'm building an ark. Well, what's an ark? Well, I've never seen one before, but according to the blueprints, it's flat bottom barge, kind of like a raft with sides and a roof. And it's going to float on a flood. Oh, it's going to float on water, yes. Noah, you're 100 miles away from the nearest body of water. Well, God will bring the water. Okay, if he does, let's just assume he does. Why is it so big? Well, it's got to be this big because uh, it's going to hold a, a pair of every species of land animal which breathes through the nose or nasal passages. Oh, and you're going to round them all up. No, God's going to do that. How? I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, how are you going to take care of thousands of animals on that boat? 
Well, I really don't know that either. What about us? You know, people. We breathe through our nose too, except during hay fever season. What about us? Well, you're invited to come and join me. There's plenty of room for hundreds, if not several thousand, that I'm hoping will believe. And what if we don't? You'll die. Oh, well, who said that? God did. You mean everybody that doesn't buy your story about this boat and animals and a flood is going to be killed by the judgment of God? That's right. And you can imagine at that moment, you know, that the tone of the conversation is going to change. Why? Because Noah is delivering a message of potential judgment by God upon people we've already been told do not care about God. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 has already informed us that the thoughts and plans of everyone was entirely given over to evil continually. That's the description of Noah's generation. Try warning your world the way Noah warned his. The Apostle Peter informs us that the next worldwide cataclysm is going to be not water, but what? Fire. The end of human history, fire is going to destroy the earth and God's going to remake a new heaven and a new earth, 2 Peter chapter 3. And then just before the, the creation of this new world, judgment's going to take place and all who refuse to believe the gospel message will be cast into an eternal lake of fire. You mean to tell me that a billion Muslims and two billion plus Hindus and a lot of other people are going to face the judgment of God if they don't believe your gospel? Is that what you're saying? No. That's what God said. And I'm just repeating his warning. You see, it's actually easy to miss the fact that Noah was a messenger of rescue. It's actually easy to miss the fact that everything Noah is doing is calculated to save, not condemn. But you see, the gospel has two sides to it, one of rescue, and then the other, obviously, if you're not rescued, judgment. Listen, a worldwide global flood is coming, and everybody's going to drown who does not get into the ark. And, and nobody believes him. Nobody beyond his immediate family. They mock him. Imagine a hundred years of preaching, and at the end of it, nobody has bought it. Let me say here at this point that Noah is a man of great faith, not because people responded to his voice, but because he responded to God's voice, right? Are you willing to persevere in your faith even when surrounded by mockery? Are you willing to be a lonely man, a lonely woman, or a young person? Do you understand that even though your message is an invitation to rescue, it's also a message that surfaces sin and calls, 
causes people to confront their guilt? Do you understand that you expose people when you shine the light? I felt sorry for that one little kid. He was standing right in front of that speaker, and the whole time he's got his ears closed. Man, he put him right there. That's the world. You, you put a light right in front of their eyes, and it hurts. Turn that thing off. That's what you do. You not only show the way, but you bother people with the message you're delivering. Alcibiades was a brilliant yet ungodly young man living in Athens during the days of Socrates, around, around 400 years before the birth of Christ. And one day, Alcibiades said to Socrates, Socrates, I hate you so, for every time I meet you, you show me what I am. Historians say that one of the godliest men who lived in Athens was a man by the name of Aristides. He was even nicknamed Aristides the Righteous. Eventually, however, the leading citizens just didn't want him around. In fact, the court of Athens voted to exile him, to send him away. And one of the men was asked why he so voted that way. And he responded, because I am tired of hearing Aristides called righteous. What does that make me? Are you willing to stand alone? Are you willing to persevere in your faith even in the midst of mockery? Have you ever been called goody two-shoes? You know that phrase, I don't know why it came back to me um, when I was studying this text. Some ancient Hebrew probably manuscript I was reading, but at any rate, goody two-shoes just came to my mind. And I thought about that. You know, it receives the scorn of people. It's kind of a deriding comment toward people, godly people, good people. I had no idea where the phrase came from, so I did a little digging and found that it originated in a children's story about a little orphan who only had one shoe. It was all tattered and beat up. A wealthy man, in kindness, gave this little orphan girl a pair of beautiful new shoes, and, and she was so changed because of this gracious gift that she wanted to live up to her new shoes, for her life to match her shoes. And so people would refer to her not in a deriding fashion, but simply as, there she goes, goody two-shoes. She was so remarkably changed after receiving the gift. And I couldn't help but think, obviously, shouldn't we all? Having been given by our Father the gift of forgiveness, the, the shoes of the gospel, should we not live up to them? But when we do, remember, the danger of a godly life is it means exposure to your world. You live an ethical life, and, and it may not be appreciated. You do the right thing, and it may not be applauded. You might be a lonely man or woman. You ever try to do the right thing, and it kind of backfires? I remember in college, as a freshman, getting a job working on an assembly line making microwaves, They'd come down this assembly line, this conveyor belt, and I was given the job of a guy. They moved to another part of the line, and 
And the job was just to simply take a little motor and attach a couple of brackets to it and stick a fan on it and bolt it down and then hand it to the assembly line. And uh, I watched this man do it and, and uh, I was kind of nervous because he got it done just in time to hand it to the, the, the guy on the, on the line. And I thought, man, I'm, I'm not going to be able to keep up. And so for the first hour, I'm just kind of sweating it, and I finally figured out if I reposition the stock a certain way, and I can limit my movements for efficiency, and I could get this thing done. And I found that, that halfway through my shift, I was getting way ahead. In fact, I had gotten to the point where I had stacked on top of my desk these motors. And for the rest of my shift, I, it, was, it was just boring. I just stood there and handed them to this guy and realized that what I could do is position them so all he had to do was just turn and grab it whenever he wanted to grab it. And I went down the line to help people that needed help. I, had, I, I didn't know that the guy whose place I'd taken was absolutely infuriated with what I had naively exposed. He had made it seem like he could just get it done in time. I'll never forget, he came over to me at one point, his face was beet red, and he said, why are you trying to make me look so bad? And I was stunned. I, I didn't know what to say. That thought hadn't crossed my mind. You know, later on, I wanted to walk over to him and say, hey, you're a lion. Every time you show up to work, why don't you get busy, you lazy sluggard? But I didn't. He was bigger than I was, and so I just kept my mouth shut. Listen, you do the right thing, and sometimes it backfires. You're going to make waves. You live a life of, of honesty and, and purity and, and, and trust in Christ. You, you, you demonstrate that kind of faith, and then you're going to need to get ready to demonstrate that faith in the midst of those waves you have created. Faith demonstrates perseverance in the midst of mockery. Let me make another observation about faithful Noah. Secondly, faith is demonstrating patience in the midst of silence. Now, I don't want you to underestimate the task God called Noah to do just because we know the end of the story. Yeah, big boat, you know, animals, flood, great, everything worked out. Now, slow down. God is asking Noah to believe in something that's never happened. He's asking Noah to buy into something that is unimaginable. It isn't possible to imagine this. And, and here's the point that is so staggering uh, to me. For the most part, after the initial visit by God, where God gives him instructions, tells him about the flood that's coming, and the animals, and gives him the blueprint, for the most part, after that initial meeting then, in fact, from that point until 100 years later, Noah has no further word or visit from God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been put in that predicament, I'd like God to show up at least once a year, you know, on the anniversary of his first visit. Hang in there, Stephen. You, you can do it. I'm going to keep my word. I mean, at least a year out, maybe five, ten would be nice, a hundred, a hundred years. 
It's remarkable to me to think that he did this when God was silent. And then we have the record of God coming at the end of a hundred years when you get to chapter 7 of Genesis and God tells Noah to enter the ark with his family and they obey. And then most people don't read far enough to get this. They, they're told to wait in the ark for seven more days of silence. We're not told why there's seven days. Could have been a period of mourning um, for the death of the patriarch whose death would bring the judgment. We don't know if they were mourning Methuselah's death. Seven days. Can you imagine the neighbors? Come the animals. Noah and the family get on. They get on. Door shuts. Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. Day three, nothing. Day four. Day five. Day six. By now, the neighbors, you know, they got a barbecue going outside the ark, and, and they're playing badminton and volleyball. And can you imagine the Noah jokes? Can you imagine the flood jokes? Can you imagine the blasphemy against the God of Noah? And they're sitting in the ark. We have every reason to believe, according to Scripture, it was nothing but silent. And then some raindrops begin to fall and dance off the sand next to people mocking and sizzle off the top of that barbecue grill. And people looked up. And then according to the Hebrew text, what we do know is that suddenly the springs of water under the earth's surface erupted. And the judgment of God came. Now, since the lens of our focus isn't on the flood, but on Noah, let me fast forward the DVD to the end of the flood. And turn over to Genesis 9. Noah picks up life back on the planet. He exits the ark, goes back to farming. God not only records the successes of biblical heroes, he records their sins. In Genesis chapter 9, we read the first mention in the Bible of the word wine. And at its introduction, it means trouble. In verse 20, we're told, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk. Now, there are some commentators that I read that said, well, poor Noah didn't know what he was doing and, and uh, you know, just drank too much. No, I think he knew what he was doing. He got drunk and uncovered himself in the tent. In his drunkenness, he just shed his clothes and in an embarrassing display Ham, the father of Canaan, verse 22, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. The key to understanding this text is that Noah's failure is going to reveal the condition of his three sons' 
hearts. That's all it does. In fact, the actions of Ham can be paraphrased, one Hebrew scholar said in verse 22 to me, and you ought to write this in the margin, it'll help. He told his brothers with delight. That's the point. I mean, he thinks this is great. In other words, that for some time, he had evidently resented his father's faith and his walk, and now he sees his father's failure, and instead of helping, his father retains some modicum of, of dignity. He rejoices in it, and he goes out without helping his dad, and he says to his brothers, hey, this is great. You'll believe it. Look at what old dad's doing. And he mocks him. It's interesting to me that all of the human race descends from not only Adam, but Noah, right? And both Adam and Noah sinned while partaking of fruit. Noah, the fruit of the vine, and Adam, the fruit of the tree. And as a result, each of them became naked and had to be covered by someone else. And their actions will lead to a curse, and mankind has been affected in some way ever since. While I'm on this thought of analogy, let me give you some relative to the Ark of Noah and the Gospel of Christ before we wrap it up. First, if you study the story, you'll know, in fact, we looked at this text in Genesis 6-8, I believe, where we're told that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. I love that phrase. He found grace in the eyes of God. It was because of the grace of God that Noah found his place of safety on that ark, rescued from the coming wrath of God. So we also find our place in Christ, the ark of our salvation. How? By grace alone. We are rescued by grace in Christ, and the coming wrath of God will not touch us, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. There's another. The ark symbolized God's atoning work for mankind. In fact, if we had taken just a little more time which we didn't, but I want to bring out this one particular fact. The Hebrew word for pitch, that tar-like substance that Noah was commanded to cover uh, the ark with, it's the same root word, kafir, used for atonement. In the sacrificial system later, that's the word used. In a very real way, the word atonement first appears in the Bible in relation to Noah's ark. In the ark... Mankind is covered from the wrath of God. Here's another analogy. The ark was strong enough to handle the waves and the storm that pounded against it for more than a year. Jesus Christ is strong enough to carry us safely through the storms not only of life, but protect us from the storm of God's wrath. He is our shelter. No matter what winds may blow, He is our ark of safety. And there's another came to my mind in studying this. There was only one door 
into that ark. There's only one way in. Only one way to safety as the judgment of God came. Unlike rabbinical legends we talked about earlier uh, today, you know, Noah wasn't feeding a guy out on the rung of the ladder with a hole he punched through the ark to feed king, the king uh, Gog and, and his sons. No. There's only one door and you had to go in to be saved. There's only one door that leads to everlasting safety from the wrath of, of God. Jesus said, I am the way, say it with me, the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except by me. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus Christ said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. John 10, 9. Have you been saved? Well, the answer to that is, have you gone through the door of Christ? Have you entered through the door into the one who is both the door and the ark of your salvation. I can remember knowing full well that I was not saved. As a teenager, I didn't want to give my life to Jesus Christ, but I knew I wasn't safe either. I knew enough about the Bible. In fact, I believed the Bible was true, and that's what scared me, because I knew it was true. I knew that Christ could come at any moment for his church to rapture it away, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. And I was, I was afraid. I was terrified of being left behind. Left behind as God began to pour out on the earth his bowls of judgment that occupy most of the book of Revelation. Revelation 3.10 all the way through chapter 19. And I was afraid because I knew I was not safe. As a teenager, I would get out of bed at night and tiptoe down the hallway and look in on my little brothers who shared a room. I would quietly open the door to see if I could make out the silhouette of their bodies. And then when I could, I'd tiptoe back down the hallway into my bedroom and try to sleep. You enter the ark by faith in Christ because of the grace of God, and you are not only saved, think of it this way, you are also safe. There's more. Inside the ark, there is perfect security. God had shut them in, Genesis 7, 16. God closed the door. Noah couldn't open the door if he wanted to. He didn't provide the security of closing the door behind them when he got in. They were not only safe, but they were secure. They never needed to fear that God would change his mind and cast them out. They were safe. The door was closed. Oh, the terror of those outside the door and oh, the wonderful security of those inside separated by a door that God had closed. So also the believer in Christ never fears the same. Jesus Christ said, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise or way cast what? Cast out. You can think of it in terms of this analogy. You never need to fear that God is going to change his mind and throw you overboard. It's never going to happen. 
It won't happen, John 6, 37. Here's another analogy. came to my mind and spirit. Jesus Christ, the ark of our salvation, will succeed in his mission. His gospel will triumph. The ark of salvation and the church of his redeemed will not capsize. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's no lifeboat hanging from the side of the ark just in case. No. Noah and his family didn't bring in uh, life jackets. There are no cards in the seat in front of them just in case the boat goes down. There are no emergency portholes. They were safe in the ark of God, and God would bring that ark at his timing, and according to his purposes, it will arrive exactly where he wants it, and when he wants it, and so will his church. He will succeed, and all who are with him. Let me give you two final timeless truths from the biography of this hero of faith. First of all, faith is trust in the Word of God even when it seems impossible. Even when it seems impossible. Beloved, faith is not a leap into the dark. It is walking in the light of God's Word even when all around you grows dark. Secondly, faith is obedience to the will of God, even when it requires everything. In other words, whatever God wants you to do, faith is obedience to his word and his will, even when it requires everything you have and everything you are. That's, that's the vehicle that takes you along as you obey God. It's your faith in him. There was no middle ground for Noah. None at all. It was all or nothing. And he gave everything. Amy Carmichael, that Irish missionary to India for some 60 years, in fact, once she got over there, she never came back. She said, there is much talk in the church, but so much shallow living she would write, and I quote her, I wonder if it's because there are so few who are prepared to be like a pine tree on a hilltop alone in the wind for God. A solitary pine tree on a hill alone in the wind, but with God. That is the testimony of this hero of faith. Faith, beloved, as demonstrated in this man's life, is perseverance in spite of the scorn of unbelievers and the silence, for the most part, the silence of God. Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege and the delight of this assembly. 
Thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together and to have another opportunity on this, the Lord's day, your day, to get into your word and to enjoy the company of each other, the truths that encourage our hearts, and even to see things like we've seen tonight with our children who are learning your word. May we model for them faith which perseveres. May they grow up to model the same. And I don't know, Father, what the chapters hold for every believer here. And I would trust that everyone here, Father, is indeed, by grace, safe. I'm not sure what it is in their lives, Father, that would be termed or titled impossible. Help them to trust your word even when it is. I'm not sure in the lives of the beloved what it is that you're calling them to that requires everything. We thank you that when we do indeed give you everything in that, we find our joy and fulfillment and the strength to move and persevere and continue. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our rock. You are our hiding place. You are our ark. And we are safe and secure, and we will succeed in you, and the day will come when you shall reign forever, and we with you. So help us as we leave, Father, and face a new week to live godly lives and to ride upon the waves that are created because of it, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, amen. amen.